there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in business development and the difference between business development and sales, whether in the public or private sector or both, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is the founder of a company called Growth Period, which has a proven track record of helping companies in both the federal and commercial sectors achieve smart growth through business development. But before I introduce you to Courtney Spaeth, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive window into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee, and it's all smushed together, dot org and sign up. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Courtney Spaeth, the founder and chief executive officer at Growth Period. Over the last 13 years, Courtney is solely responsible for successfully closing over 280 clients. And I did the math. That is on average 21 new clients every year. And what makes this even more noteworthy is that Courtney didn't major in business or Hmm. finance and she didn't get her MBA. Instead, she majored in military history as an undergrad and got her master's in national security studies. Prior to founding Growth Period in 2007, Courtney served as a corporate vice president of Homeland Security for Raytheon Company. That's a major U.S. defense contractor and industrial corporation where she was responsible for developing the company's homeland security business in North America, the Middle East, Eastern and Western Europe and Asia. And in less than two years, her efforts resulted in new revenue of over a billion dollars. Before Raytheon, Courtney served as Director of Homeland Systems Solutions for Lockheed Martin. That's a global aerospace, defense, security, and advanced technologies company where she won over $3 billion in new business. Courtney has also served in government, in the White House, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Defense, where she was the assistant in charge of global terrorism issues in the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. It's a mouthful. Courtney, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated on your iced tea and ready to go? I am. Thank you for having me, Andrea. I appreciate it. And oh. I am drinking my iced tea now. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I have my hot coffee right next to me and I am going to need caffeine to keep up with you. Oh my God. Before we get into what you're doing now as the CEO of Growth Period and considering what is happening right now here in the US and around the world with the coronavirus pandemic, we are now the third week of April and the fact, Courtney, that college graduation season is upon us. What advice do you have for graduating seniors who are understandably 
very anxious and probably fearful about their job prospects in this economic climate. When I graduated college in the mid-90s, there was a recession, which people have forgotten about. And it was certainly not a global pandemic, but it was hard to get a job, yet we all managed. I think my advice to them would be, this will pass, and you've worked hard to get where you are. Just push through it. Persevere, and it'll work itself out. It may not be that you get the exact job you thought you would right away, but just keep your head down and work hard and stay focused on your goal, and you'll get there. You really will. This will pass. You raised this during our espresso shots interview. And if folks are interested in learning how to break into the field of business development, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Courtney's espresso shots episode has already dropped. But you raised the fact that you had gotten an unpaid internship at the White House after you graduated in the mid 90s and share with our young listeners, Courtney, how you paid the bills. Well, first of all, when I was in the White House working in my non-paid internship, I lived literally in an attic with a girlfriend. We could only afford to rent an attic (laughs) of a house on Macomb Street in Washington, D.C. So we also sort of lived within our means, which were paltry. And I waitressed, I catered, I taught SAT at Kaplan Test Prep, I tutored. I mean, I literally worked as a receptionist at H&R Block on weekends. I did what I had to do to pay the bills. I didn't have an ego. I wasn't above working hard. As I prepared for this interview, Courtney, I read a beautiful Mother's Day tribute that was written to you, I don't mean to embarrass you, by your stepdaughter, Erica, in which she recounts the huge curveball that you were thrown while you were still in college. And I know that this is something you've spoken about before. You also mentioned it in our Espresso Shots interview. Would you mind sharing what happened to you with our young listeners and whether or not you think that devastating personal experience that you had while you were in college may have in fact played a role in the later professional success you've had? My father went to federal prison when I was senior in college for a white collar offense, and he was completely guilty. And we had been a very close family. I was not aware that he was committing a crime. You know, it's not something you sort of discuss with your family, but he committed a pretty significant environmental offense. He was a commercial landlord. From there, he kind of spiraled out of control. And my whole family fell apart. We really lost everything. My parents divorced. We no longer had our house. And I was told I had to pay for college, which I hadn't been told. And I wasn't aware that he hadn't been paying the bill. So it was quite a significant experience. I graduated early. I, at 21, really became the adult parent to my parents and took over paying the bills and had a huge loan obligation to University of Pennsylvania. And, you know, I think that what it taught me was to rise to the occasion. I don't do victim, right? It's not what happens that defines you. It's how you deal with it. And so I persevered and I kept my head down and I stayed positive and I made sure I still had a social life. I still dated and had friends. I didn't use the adversity as a reason to become a miserable person or to feel sorry for myself. And I think it made me stronger more focused, and it's contributed both to my successes and to my failures. During the Espresso Shots interview, when I asked you the question about 
what kind of life experiences are most useful for someone starting out in business development. Without hesitation, you said having, I'm paraphrasing, gone through hardship, having experienced some kind of really difficult personal situation that you had to manage and persevere through. Knowing what you know now, what would you tell graduating seniors and those young people who may still be in college, whether as freshmen, sophomores, or juniors, about how to view the coronavirus curveball that they've been thrown? I mean, look, it's a historic period that's unprecedented. So there's no way to use an analogy, oh, when I was 10 or, you know, your grandparents went through this. I think what's important is when I was their age and I graduated, my dad was in prison, my mom was in retail. She was a salesperson at Neiman Marcus making like $6 an hour. I was an only child and I didn't have a support system beyond them. And there was a recession and I still persevered and succeeded no matter what it is, whether it's a pandemic or in my case, a parent going to federal prison, it shouldn't define what you want to do or where you're going to go. You just have to find your way through it. And the more creative you are, and the more focused you are on achieving your goals, the more likely it is that this pandemic will be a seminal experience for you, but not necessarily one that curtails your ambition. You've got to look at it as something to get through and head towards something else versus something that is just an obstacle you can't surmount. You can do anything you want to. You just have to believe that. Thank you so much. So Growth Period. It's a global consulting firm specializing in business development in the commercial, federal, and transaction advisory market space. Could you de-wonkify that for us? <laughs> for those of us who are not immersed in this world, Courtney, what does that mean? We do two things functionally. We help companies win work in support of governments around the world and also in support of other commercial companies. So we help a company such as Circo, which is a defense contractor, win work with the government of Canada by driving their strategy and helping them identify what they should focus on to grow their business. Or we help commercial companies like a Stagwell Group which is a public relations conglomerate, win work with universities to help them articulate what their value proposition is to potential future students. In terms of transaction advisory services, I don't think this will necessarily resonate with young people, but we are not a broker dealer. We're very big into ethics and compliance. And so we don't do any buying or selling of companies, which is what that means. We do a lot of growth to exit strategic planning for company owners. They want to sell in five years and we tell them how to get there from a growth perspective. And we also do a lot of due diligence for private equity or for big companies looking to buy smaller companies where we help them figure out really how successful that target company is. Everybody sort of fibs a little bit about how much they're growing. We call it the compendium of business optimism. And we come in and look at, we're like a growth detective. We look at how they're doing with their customers and what they say their future customers will be. And we are able to tell our client, who is the buyer usually, if they are fibbing or if they're crazy pants, which is our technical term, which is... <laughs> crazy pants. Yes, crazy pants. Which nice. is when you say you're going to grow like 5,000%, but really your clients hate you, your current customers 
don't want to retain you and the companies that you are saying want to get your services either have never heard of you or think you stink. (laughs) We touched on this in the Espresso Shots episode, and I think it's really important to paint the picture for our young listeners because it was actually news to me. It makes perfect sense what the distinction is between business development, which is what you do, and sales. Well, business development is an umbrella term that encompasses many things. It's sort of like a the handle of the umbrella and it covers all the spokes. And each spoke in the umbrella is a different aspect of it. It's marketing, it's branding, it's pricing, it's relationship development, it's technical problem solving. It's really an umbrella term for a myriad of things that help you drive larger revenue deals. Sales is a much separate thing. It's a very tactical interchange process where the cycle to close revenue tends to be six months or less. And you tend to sell something that's finite. It's a product or a solution like software or hardware. It's much more transactional, whereas business development is much more about complex problem solving and relationship development. Thank you. How is growth period different from other advisory firms and understanding that these are not perfect parallels to growth period, but there are names that our young listeners, I'm sure, have heard of, whether it's a McKinsey or a Boston consulting group. They also perform some of the functions that growth period does. How are you different? Well, there's a lot of ways, Andrea, in which we differ. First of all is we are bespoke. We are a boutique firm. So we only do what we say we're going to do. Those Bigger firms, which are all very, very good firms, do a lot of different things. And they do them well, but that means that they're sort of generalist. We only do growth, hence the name, growth period. And we do it in five market areas. And in those areas, we don't take on other work because we can. We don't write your PR. We don't put together your marketing material. We don't do anything that isn't growth oriented. That doesn't mean we don't get involved in those things or have opinions. We focus really on driving revenue. The bigger firms, I think, look at much more big picture strategy. They're not really helping you drive revenue as much as they're telling you what your strategy should be, not just implementing it. And the other thing I would say, and this may not mean much yet to the young women listening, is we're also woman-owned. And none of those firms are. Most of them are not historically run by women. And so we have a different culture. It's neither better nor worse. It's just different. We're very, very, very collaborative. We've been voted the best place to work in the Washington, D.C. area for the last five years in a row. And, you know, we value culture and client satisfaction over profit and bottom line. Interesting. So play that out a little bit. What do you think the culture is at growth period that would be different? from a culture at one of those other firms? Well, I mean, we're very personal. We have something like 89% retention over almost 14 years. One of the reasons, I'd say the main reason, actually, I started the firm was because I wanted to create a culture where fear wasn't the driving sentiment. My experience, which is considerable in Fortune 100 companies, is that fear has taken over the culture in a lot of corporate America. It's not the intent behind the mistake that matters. It's the mistake. And the higher up you go, the more political it becomes, the more time you spend navigating sort of the culture of your peers 
and sharp elbows and the less time you spend on solving the actual problems you were hired to address. Whereas at our firm, we basically operate as a team. That doesn't mean I'm not the boss. That doesn't mean there aren't other bosses in our firm. There are other people who had market verticals or functional areas, but we're extremely collaborative. And it is the intent behind the mistake that matters for us, not the mistake itself. Love it. We are going to touch on your time as an undergrad in a few minutes, Courtney. But as I said in the introduction, you didn't major in business. Far from it. (laughs) And you got your master's in national security studies, not an MBA. So where do you think you got your business acumen? Did you learn it on the job or do you think it's just something that comes naturally to you or both? So I think in terms of problem solving and the relationship driven kind of sales, in in that sense, I mean little S sales, not big S sales, but the, the ability to be a closer. Okay. I do think that I was inherently born with it. When I was 10 years old, I helped a friend of mine with her paper route. She was selling papers, not distributing them. And I took one corner and she took a corner and her mom took a corner and they came back and picked me up for lunch and all the papers were gone. I sold them all, you know, <laughs> and they had like huge piles still. And the mom was like, what, what did you do with them? And so I sold them all and I gave her the money and she was shocked because that's not something she or her daughter had ever accomplished. And I just thought it was normal. I think that you can have an inherent ability to be a closer. And I think it's a hard thing to teach. So I think you are sort of born with that. In in terms of other aspects of it, I certainly have learned on the job. I'm going to startle you here by telling you that I recently got admitted into executive MBA program at Darden and at Stern. So at UVA and at NYU, I've always wanted to get my MBA and, and my husband researched it for me and said, there's two really top programs in the DC area. Why don't you apply? And I did. And I just got in. So I'm wow. actually going to go get my executive MBA on weekend, starting in August wow. uh, at one of those schools. Congratulations. So I, thank you. So I mean, I do think an MBA is valuable. I wouldn't be doing it at my age and I'm old. But I think I did learn on the job. But I think I've also been inherently honest with myself to say that I feel like there are aspects of what I do where I don't feel the confidence in my foundational education. And that is why I'm getting my global executive MBA now. Okay. So what qualities and skills do you think are most important to cultivate if our young listeners want to excel in business development? Listening. You have to listen. You're there to solve someone else's problem. And if you don't understand what the problem is and what their solution is or what they're trying to do to help someone else solve a problem, you're not going to be able to sell it. Second is, again, the ability to write research and be a good communicator is essential. You can't help somebody do a deal if you can't write research or articulate how to solve the problem or the value proposition. I would say those are very, very, very important skills. Has it helped you that you are a subject matter expert on the national security side of your business? I would say in the beginning, it was exceptionally helpful. By now, no, not so much. And I try hard to avoid that. It's amazing how after all these years, I mean, I haven't been in the government doing national security and I haven't been in the commercial world doing national security as my only focus in, I don't know, 15 years. And I still get asked questions. And there still is an inference that because I was there prior to 911 that I know more than people who are in it now. 
I would say my foundational education in it is extremely strong and my practical experience in it was very strong, but it's not what I do anymore. And I really don't think it's relevant to the business development aspect of Love Room. Okay. And before I pivot to something else, I do want to pick up on what you said about the fact that you were a natural and are a natural closer. Can you kind of tease that out a bit more? What does it mean to be a closer? What is the distinction between being a closer and being a good relationship manager? So business development is an art and a science. It's very important to have the science aspect of it. We keep metrics, we use algorithms. We do things that involve repeatable processes because if you are in business development, Closing one deal, your entire career isn't going to do it. You have to constantly be able to close. And that means understanding the fundamentals of the business aspects of it. But there is an element to it beyond the science that involves the art, which is relationship cultivation and the ability to convince your audience that what you're providing them as a solution is the right one. And I would say that that comes from confidence, which is not arrogance. It is the ability to project confidence and quiet assertiveness about what you know and what you're presenting. But at the same time, be completely honest about the fact that you don't know aspects of it or you can't be an expert in all things. So you may be helping sell the solution, but you didn't design it. So you can't explain the code. And saying, I don't know, but let me get Fred or Mark or Sally and they'll help you. So I think that confidence is a very important part of being a closer. People are naturally attracted to positivity, confidence, and confidence. Nobody really, when they're in a room, is like, well, I want to gravitate to the insecure, kind of miserable person, right? Energy, and I'm not at all that kind of person, but energy matters, right? And so if you project energy that's positive and you have confidence and confidence, I think it's better for you to be in a position to close deals. And so there are a lot of openers, people who have natural social skills who can say, Andrea, meet Sally, Sally, meet Andrea, but they can't close the deal. They don't understand the science part of it, but you also need the art of it. And I think that's why I'm a closer. I understand both. How do you recommend that young people who may just be starting out in business development and have what at least I had, and I know other people have had when they've been new in a new profession, and that is this kind of undercurrent of an imposter syndrome where you feel that you're a little out of your depth and you're trying to kind of get your sea legs, but you don't want to project that to, in the case of business development, your prospective clients. So what advice do you have, Courtney, for young people in that situation? Just be honest, ask questions and listen. When I was in my 20s, I worked in the defense department in special operations as a civilian. And I think I was rapidly promoted to a very, very senior role. And I think one of the reasons why was because as a young female professional, I didn't have the insecurity that maybe some of my male younger colleagues did where they were competing against the special operators, you know, for masculinity or whatever it was. I was just honest and said, I don't know, teach me. I have questions. Here's what they are. And I listened. And I think that that came off as really strong sense of maturity. And it helped grow me as a person, but it also helped promote my career. If you were graduating this spring, Courtney, 
and you were interested in the field of business development, where would you look for jobs that would help you hone the necessary skills that someone like you would be looking for in young people that you're hiring down the road? I mean, it's a good question, Andrea. It's complicated because of the coronavirus pandemic, of course. I would think first, I'd, as a person, I'm not sure I'd have the sophistication to understand the difference between business development and sales. But if I really wanted a career in business development, I think I'd look more for a mentor, a boss that will invest in me and teach me the science and art of relationships than I would look for a particular company brand. I think if I want to do sales, I'd go to a big tech company like a Salesforce that invests in their salespeople, has programs for their growth and development. Fantastic. So we are going to touch on your time as an undergrad in a few minutes. But as I said in the introduction, you didn't major in business, Hmm. right? There's a little acknowledgement that you probably weren't even thinking about business because you got your MA in national security studies, not an MBA. Is it accurate that you weren't even thinking about business when you first graduated? That is correct. I had no interest in business at all in my entire undergraduate years at the University of Pennsylvania, which hosts the Warden School, the best business school in the nation. I look back and, you know, I had really no advisors. My parents were not in a position to really be good advisors to a young person looking forward. And I didn't have brothers or sisters. So I really didn't have anyone to talk to me about the practicalities of a career. I went with what my heart said, which was national security, and I was a military history major. And I, <laughs> I concentrated a, a lot in World War II in Vietnam, and in particular, special forces in Vietnam. So it wasn't the sort of thing that was extremely common in the mid-90s. What was it that attracted you to that major, Courtney? And did you know what you were going to do with it when you graduated? Well, when I was a young child, when I was a little girl, probably around second or third grade, there was a mini series on TV called The Winds of War by an author named Herman Wilkes. And it really captivated my attention. I really related to the military, which was the first time I'd been exposed to it. No one in my community at all on the main line of Philadelphia was in the military. No parents, no one we knew at least. And I really just decided that I wanted to have a career where I could help those who helped the nation. I was very interested in the idea of altruism and you know, the concept that you gave back to people who were helping something larger than themselves. And so that was what I wanted to do. And and as I got into my education at UPenn, I decided I was very interested in the evolution of U.S. Special Forces. In terms of what I wanted to do with it, I wanted to graduate and go work with U.S. Special Forces with the national security apparatus. Eventually, in my 20s, I was fortunate enough to do that in the Defense Department. But when I graduated, everyone thought I was nuts. And no one had any real contact or networking for me in D.C. And there weren't a lot of women in national security then. I was like number 73 in women in defense when it started as a membership organization. And, you know, I went to school for national security in the 90s for my master's at night. And there just weren't a lot of women, you know, in the master's program and my undergraduate major or to look up to. There wasn't at that time yet when I graduated, Madeleine Albright, that she came not long after. And Hillary Clinton wasn't in the role she became into. She was the first lady. And so we had Jean Kirkpatrick, who nobody knows who she is today. But I mean, we had very few women. And so it was very hard for me. I remember being in my rental unit and talking to my family on the phone and being very frustrated and promising myself that if I ever got anywhere, I would help other young women 
or other women get into non-traditional fields because I really struggled. And, and ultimately, I had some fantastic male mentors who really assisted me and deserve a lot of credit for that, for reaching down and helping a young woman get into a non-traditional field. How did you get those mentors? Well, that's a good question. I think that really, I just worked super hard and I stayed true to what I wanted to do. I had a lot of adversity. I was very, very poor. And yet I was smart. And I went to Georgetown at night and worked hard and worked hard during my job. And I think that honestly, being a smart young woman who was working hard and was not arrogant about accepting advice really helped me create some goodwill with my bosses at work and were got around about what my master's program was focused on. And they helped me network to come to the attention of people in the special operations field. And that was very helpful to me because I stood out. There weren't many people getting their master's with a concentration in special operations in the 90s, let alone a young woman with an Ivy League degree. There weren't a lot of people with Ivy League degrees who were looking at special operations who weren't in Moxie. And so I think I was sort of a curiosity at first. And then my hard work and lack of ego, I think, really helped me get their interest and help them really become invested in my success. And that was great. Wonderful. So as you've already mentioned, when you graduated from UPenn, you took an unpaid internship at the White House and you worked various jobs to pay your bills. And you were also paying back tens of thousands of dollars in loans from college. Mm -hmm. And it was incredibly difficult. In 1999, shortly thereafter, you got a job as an assistant in charge of global terrorism issues in the office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, Low Intensity <laughs> Conflict. Quite a mouthful. Yeah. And either simultaneously or concurrently, maybe that means the same thing or one after the other, you also <laughs> worked as a program manager for counterterrorism policy and you did that for a year. And then why did you move to Lockheed Martin? How did that happen? I went to work for a contractor who hired me to work in special operations uh, in ASD SOLIC. As you just said, you, you read out the acronym, so I'm not going to repeat it. And then the ASD and my boss in SOLIC came to me and said there was a Schedule C, a presidential appointment, available to run the anti-terrorism, the assistant for anti-terrorism, to run part of the portfolio, the small part, but it, you know, still, and that they wanted to put me forward to the White House for that. And I ended up going into the government and getting that position. So I stayed in special ops and I moved from a program manager with the private sector over to a GS-15 with the government. I think it was a 15. Could have been a 14. But it was very senior for someone who was in their mid-20s. And then I got out because the Clinton administration ended. And when you're a Schedule C, you're dependent on the length of time that the administration is in office. And I had been offered some private sector jobs and to be fair and honest, my father was also getting out of prison and I wanted to see if I could take care of him for a while, which really wasn't a successful attempt on my part, but it was good intention. And I thought being in the private sector would allow for a little bit more money since he wasn't going to have any income. And I was consulting and then 911 happened. And the office I used to sit in in the Pentagon was hit by a plane. And I all of a sudden became a little tiny bit popular with defense contractors who had somehow got in a hold of the names of people who understood who Osama bin Laden was, which, you know, I did prior to 911, although I did not work on his portfolio at all. 
but I did sit in the office that managed it. And it's a small defense world. Names got around and, and I knew somebody at Lockheed Martin and the head of business development for services at Lockheed Martin called me and said, hey, we understand you have experience in something that we're now calling Homeland Security. And we're starting a Homeland Security division, and we'd like you to come on board and be a manager in business development working for us and help us grow. In that area, we understand you have relationships with a lot of people there. And I did, and I was very, very interested in, very interested in learning business development. And there I went. So what were you responsible for selling and how did you become so well-versed in the products, Courtney, that you had to sell that you were able to win over $3 billion in new revenue? So I was part of a team that won that, right? It's not just me. It's never just one person. It's always a team. And I think it's really important to acknowledge the roles of everybody. And the way it really worked was, first of all, Lockheed sent me to their internal school called the um, Win Institute, I think is what it was called. Don't quote me. I might, I might have that wrong, but I think it was called the Win Institute. And they taught us the science of process around winning work. And that was incredibly thorough and intense. It was a couple weeks. And I found it really helpful. And then I was partnered with a small team. There were, I think, four of us, a boss, and then three of us that were peers. And I worked with my three peers and I really had the instincts and the relationship. And one of my peers was really good at writing proposals. Another one was really good at understanding how to navigate the company and how to get things done from a business development perspective. And a third was just um, a really nice, talented woman who just was very helpful to me navigating relationships and understanding what I should be doing. And we all worked together. And in the end, my relationship really became very, very vital to winning the work and my understanding of the customer. And I won quite a lot of it with the startup Department of Homeland Security. The team together won work at TSA, but a lot of that had been in the works before I got there. And I won a lot of work with Secret Service and some other areas. And I think ultimately, for whatever reasons, and I think they were probably very substantive good ones, my bosses promoted me to be director, which put me in the position of being boss of my team. There's three people who were, by the way, markedly older than I was, probably by 20 years at the minimum, all of a sudden became my employees. But that's how we got what we did. How much did your subject matter expertise help you? Significantly. At that time, significantly. I understood the inner workings of the interagency combatantures and universe at an intimate level. And that was a young person. I wasn't even in a position of really serious authority when I left. But I knew a lot, a lot of people, and I knew them well. And these were the people who had been given, the ones who didn't get out, a lot got out after 911, which is a different conversation. But they really trusted me because I'd been there with them when no one else was. Prior to 911, going into special ops, going into cabin tourism was just weird. It wasn't something that people did to get a book deal or to end up on a television show. And largely at the time, if you even acknowledged a lot of the programs you worked on, you could get in a lot of trouble for violating securities acts, you know, around your clearance. So I had been there when it wasn't cool and kind of popular. And I had really, really strong, personally, deep relationships. And I can't underestimate how important my former colleagues were to my success and how simply lovely they were to me, but also how hard I worked to earn and keep their trust. And I think that was essential. We had some people at the Department of Homeland Security who had gone in in the beginning and really ended up in very senior roles. And I had been very helpful to them earlier in their career when they were looking to navigate the Department of Defense. And I was there and I was very friendly and helpful as I've always been. I've always been helpful. And they remembered that and really were very gracious about taking our propositions very seriously because they thought they could trust me. 
which gets back to the importance of trust in business development. There's so much that you've said there that's incredibly valuable in terms of just foundational advice for our young listeners. But one thing I'd like to pick up on in particular, Courtney, is the fact that you weren't influenced in what you studied as an undergrad by trying to make money or trying to become famous. It was plain and simply you following your interests. You were deeply interested in learning about military history and learning about special forces, intellectually curious about that. I'm just curious about the way that your career has unfolded and whether or not there was anything intentional in terms of the way that it evolved, or do you think that it was just one thing leading to the next in terms of just following the opportunities that came your way? It's a really good question, Andrea. I appreciate you asking it. It's something I've given sort of limited but occasional thought to throughout my years. I mean, I had no interest in making money and I still have no interest in being famous. I have always been relatively substantive and academic in my interest in things. So for me, there has to be an intellectual component or a way to give back because I'm service oriented. So I really didn't go into my career and I was about as poor as you could be when I graduated. My dad was in prison. My mom worked in retail. I mean, I was basically really hungry, but I didn't do it for money. I did it because it's what I wanted to do. And I sort of dug in and decided just because my background at that time was disadvantaged didn't mean I shouldn't achieve my dream. But over time, as I aged and reached a certain level, I decided that I was at a point in my life where I wanted to make money, that I liked having more than one pair of shoes and mac and cheese wasn't really my favorite meal. And my focus shifted towards a more of a commercialization of that interest. And then over time, I realized I liked making money quite a lot. And that, that became a big part of my focus for my career. But I think once I achieve a certain level of monetary success, I'll probably swing back towards just wanting to be more service oriented. So I think at different stages in your life, there come different family obligations or different levels of energy that you have. And your career sort of adapts to that. But I'm not sure there was a conscious focus or plan for that. And I honestly think, and this is what I would say to the young people listening, do what you love because the money will come if you're good at what you do. If you do something just for the money, you may end up miserable and then you won't be successful at all. That is such an important point. And again, recognizing that none of us knows we don't have a crystal ball. We can't look into it right now and see where the economy is going to be a month from now, let alone a year from now. But I think that those fundamentals still hold true. So for those young listeners, Courtney, who are still in college right now, and I know that there has been this real focus for so many years already on trying to reverse engineer your career in college and figure out what's going to land you the job when you graduate. And there are really practical reasons I know that's driving that because taking on all of this debt is crushing and you want to make sure you can pay it back. But I think even knowing all of that and recognizing the unique, extraordinary situation that we're in right now with the coronavirus, what would you say to those young people who are panicked 
right now, that they may have taken on the wrong major, that it may not be practical. And I'm using air quotes here because so much of our lives are virtual. I just think that as someone who studied military history (laughs) pre-9-11, and not just military history, but again, special forces studying Vietnam, studying this, I think you are the perfect person to be speaking to our young listeners and letting them know that if they just listen to themselves and follow their interests, it will fall into place. I definitely think that's true. There is no wrong major. I have children who are older. I have a son who's 30 and a daughter who's 24. My husband's a widower and I've helped raise them for years from his first marriage and we're very, very close. And as they went to college and through college and now as they look at their graduate school, I've tried to steer them towards understanding that business is the most practical degree, in my opinion, because you can do the most with it. But that doesn't mean it has to be your major. You can major in whatever you want. Ultimately, I think what I'd like to say to young people who are listening is there is no one path to success and there's no one definition of it. When I left the Fortune 100 to start a small business, a lot of people sort of pitied me. It was like they were patting me on the head. Oh, isn't that sweet? Right. But I would argue I am as successful, if not more successful than a lot of my friends who are running major corporations because I'm happy. I am healthy. I contribute. I'm successful financially and I know who I am. I don't need a title in a big company to make me feel my sense of self-worth. And hopefully I'm not going to die alone. I'm going to have this wonderful, warm family around me one day as I age. And I think that you have to decide really what is your definition of success and then work backwards from that and try to be honest with yourself. I know a lot of people who have very, very successful careers at very big companies who are very, very unhappy. They're on their third spouse. They don't have relationships with their kids. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want. But there's no one path to getting anywhere. You can be an art history major. You can be a military history major. And anybody who tells you there's a path to success is reflecting their own fear or their own limitations. I don't think what you major in or what you study, at least undergraduate, has any real relevance to where you're headed in life. Well, I agree a hundred percent. And having interviewed hundreds of professionals like you, Courtney, and listening to their stories, I can tell our young listeners, it doesn't matter what you study. What matters is that you develop key sort of foundational hard and soft skills. And I'll be talking about that at a later point in terms of what that means, but it's why I ask all my guests like Courtney, and please check out show notes to see if her Espresso Shots episode is already dropped, but why I asked her what hard and soft skills she looks for in the young people that she hires and whether their major matters, because you will hear over and over again, with very rare exception, your major in college doesn't matter. So Courtney, I try to ask all of my guests, and I think it's even more important for those who've been incredibly successful as you have, to share a time in their professional life when they really struggled. I have talked about it very openly, about the fact that I was fired twice in my 40s. They turned out to be incredible opportunities for me. So it's less about the failure and more about how you persevered and a lesson perhaps that you may have learned in the process. 
Well, again, big question. I was fired from Raytheon, just like you were fired. I was fired. And we won't get into why because it's a whole other conversation, but it had a lot to do with my gender and my youth. I mean, it was everything had to do with my gender and my youth. And we're not going to get into that conversation because I could spend hours talking about the reality of corporate America back then. And this was way before hashtag me too. But at that point, like I said, I decided that I would start my own business, which is something I never, ever thought I could do. And I really felt strongly that I didn't want to work in a big company anymore. And I started my own business, which was something I would have never done if I hadn't been fired. I would have probably just risen through the ranks of large businesses. And so getting fired really was an opportunity to determine what I wanted, not where I was going anyway, and who I was and what mattered. And I would say it was probably the hardest and best thing that ever happened to me. Double high five. Cross the airways here. This is yet again, my friends, an example of how what society terms as a failure is not a scarlet letter F. It is a badge of honor because it gives you the opportunity to show yourself who you are and to build the life that you want. Thank you so much for sharing that, Courtney. I have one final question to ask you. If you could go back to the University of Pennsylvania and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have right now, what advice would you give yourself, Courtney? I would probably study the same thing I did, but I would to a major in business. I wouldn't be intimidated by the fact that math had been my strong suit in high school and understand that that's what getting education is about, learning things that you may not already be good at. And I would give myself the confidence to explore a dual track of business as well. Fantastic. Well, me too, Courtney, me too, because when I was in high school, I really wanted to be a veterinarian. That was sort of my professional aspiration. And then I talked myself out of it because I was thinking practically and saying my strengths aren't in math or science, so I should play to my strengths. And, you know, it is what it is. And I'm very happy with where I am right now. But I think I too would have had the courage to push myself out of my comfort zone and study things that didn't come as easily to me. I want to thank you so much, Courtney, for making the Time for Coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community. You are such a role model and such a beacon of inspiration that I see as somebody who is older than you are looking and so thrilled that there are young women, and I'm emphasizing the young, women like you who are CEOs and who are building warm cultures that reflect some of the many wonderful qualities that women bring to the workforce. And I'm just so happy that you are out there building a company culture and showing other young women how to go out on their own and have the courage to do so, to reflect the values that bring out the best in all of us. Thank you so much, Courtney. Well, thank you for the kind words and for having me. It's really an honor and a pleasure, and I appreciate it. Thank you all. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. 
Thanks so much.